0: seven things I wish Christians knew.
1: Hi, and welcome to 7 Things I Wish Christians Knew, a super series designed to help you get past seven of the most common mistakes Christians make when it comes to the Bible. I'm your host, Mark Hadley, and I'm joined by Dr. Mike Bird, theological sharpshooter and the author of the book by the same name. G'day, Mike.
2: Hello, Mark, and hello to all the listeners out there.
1: Well, this episode, Mike and I are going to talk about Chapter 2. The Bible is divinely given and humanly composed. That's right. Two authors there. So first up, Mike, thanks for being part of the show. And maybe we should start with understanding just how common this misunderstanding is?
2: Yeah, Mark, it's a big question. Like, what do we mean when we say the Bible is a divine book? You know, how is God responsible for it? Does God deliver something in his own handwriting to Moses and says, Could you put out a new edition of this, please? (laughs) Did Mark go into his study with some parchment and ink and and a feather and then kind of his eyes rolled back in his head and he woke up two hours later and he had the Gospel of Mark written in front of him? I mean, how how divine is Scripture? And then what's the human bit? I mean, can can we divide it up like this bit's from God, this bit is from human beings? You know, these are sort of questions. What does it mean to call the Bible both a divine and a human book because that's been the testimony of christians that when they read the bible yes it's the words of isaiah yes it's the words of john but it's also the word of god and when we tackle the topic of inspiration that's what we're looking at how is the bible both a divine book but how is it also a human book
1: we don't have to feel embarrassed about this either it's not exactly a new question that people have been asking
2: no, not at all. People have always been talking about the extent to which Scripture is both divine and human. And you know we like to think, well what was the human element to, and what was the divine bit? i mean, does does God give people the very words to write? does he simply activate their creative abilities, does he bring to mind the remembrances and and the words, and does he even to a certain degree empower? Uh, or enable a certain type of rhetoric or persuasive ability. And this is something that people do want to know because the Bible is a book that matters. And there's errors that come across if you simply make it a human book about religion, or whether you make it a divine book of which human beings are nothing more than the pen or the quill that God used to write it.
1: Oh gosh, okay, so there's a lot up ahead to digest, but I'm looking forward to it, and we'll be talking more about today's topic quite shortly. But first, we're going to benefit from hearing a bit of chapter two
0: How God moves an author to write scripture. So far, we've seen that scripture is God breathed, and biblical authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's great. But what does it precisely mean? What happens when his breathing out and carrying along goes down? What does inspiration actually do to the minds and writing hands of the prophets, historians, sages, poets, editors and apostles who wrote the Bible? Well, there are several possibilities to consider. Inspiration as artistic ability. To begin with, some people consider biblical inspiration to be like artistic inspiration. Feelings of religious fervour, meditation on God, or basking in God's creation lead a person to verbalise their experience of what God is saying to them. This makes God more of a muse than a communicator. God inspires people in the same sense that a sunrise or a rose inspires a poet. But it is kind of absurd to imagine Moses thinking, Gosh, I feel angry today. Maybe God is telling us to kill all the Canaanites and then writing instructions on the conquest of Canaan. Or Matthew saying, I feel really blessed today. I reckon Jesus would really want to bless lots of people. And then composing the Beatitudes. Or Isaiah reflecting on the despair of Israel languishing in Babylon and feeling compelled by the idea of God's mercy to imagine a day when God rescues the exiles from Babylon and returns them to Judea. Divine inspiration should not be equated with religious feelings attributed to God or sensations of creativity that make God merely the stimulus of one's imagination. Inspiration as divine endorsement. Others conceive of inspiration as God's validation of a written text. That is to say that Hosea and James composed their respective works, basically their own ideas written on their own steam, and then God simply put his heavenly stamp of approval on what they wrote. As if God said, I'm God, and I approve this message. But inspiration is not merely divine endorsement of a religious text. God is active in revelation rather than retrospectively affirming human literary projects. Such a view of inspiration reduces God to the role of a publishing editor, or even worse, to a literary critic. Inspiration as Divine Dictation A common explanation for biblical inspiration has been divine dictation. In divine dictation, God speaks into the mind of an Obadiah or a Luke, who in turn write word for word what they hear. To be fair, there is something akin to dictation narrated in scripture when God tells someone to write something down. For example, this happened when the Lord told Moses to write down the Song of Deliverance, that the Israelites would sing as a memorial to what the Lord had done for them in the Exodus. God instructed Isaiah to commit to writing a prophetic warning about the folly of looking to Egypt for deliverance from Assyria. Jeremiah is told on one occasion to, Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. Finally, John of Patmos is instructed to write certain words from the exalted Jesus in the first person to the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. However, while dictation might be seen in a few limited instances, it does not appear to have been normal. I don't think God dictated to Luke that he had to say that I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, if he didn't actually do that. Nor did he dictate to Paul whom he forgot he baptised halfway through a sentence rebuking the Corinthians. I think Luke believed that he was writing something that he had carefully investigated, pondered and crafted into an elegant historical narrative about Jesus and the early church, not just writing what God supernaturally downloaded into his brain word for word. In 1 Corinthians, Paul genuinely forgot whom he baptised and then backtracked mid-sentence Hard to imagine God dictating that to him. Also, if dictation occurred, then why are the biblical books in so many different styles? Why do they use different vocabularies? And why do they exhibit the personalities of their authors so acutely? Dictation theory removes the human element of scripture by denying that the persona of the authors shine through the texts. At the risk of sounding irreverent, If God dictated the Greek of the book of Revelation, then to be honest, God seriously needs some remedial grammar lessons, because the Greek of Revelation is rough and clunky. So, a half-tick to dictation on a few occasions, but it will not do as the main explanation of what inspiration means since it negates the human dimension of scripture. Inspiration as divine enablement with words The most prevalent account of biblical inspiration among evangelical theologians is plenary verbal inspiration. On this view, inspiration pertains to God's work to guide the minds and personalities of human authors so that they would freely choose to write in their own words the intended meaning of what God had revealed to them. This view is better than dictation theory because it permits a role for human personalities in the composition of Scripture and yet still makes God the ultimate author of the individual words written. However, one problem is that it seems like dictation theory by a slightly lesser degree. If plenary verbal inspiration still extends to words and word order of scripture, how is this materially different from dictation theory? Inspiration as the incarnation of divine ideas in human words There has been an attempt to articulate inspiration as something similar to the Incarnation, a union of divine and human elements. On this view, Scripture is where God's Word takes on the flesh of human language, so that the Bible is fully divine and fully human. Sounds good, but no, it will not do. Jesus is an Incarnation of God, God in human flesh. The union of human and divine natures without confusion, change, mixing or separation in the man Jesus of Nazareth. This is clearly not what happens during the composition of scripture. Beyond that, let us remember too that the incarnation is unique. Incarnation is not God's normal mode of self-communication. The revelation of a divine word through the mind of a human author is one thing. But the revelation of the word of God as a human person in the flesh is quite another. God's word as a book and God's word made flesh are both revelatory and redemptive, but they are not the same thing. Inspiration as conceptual guidance. My view is that inspiration is principally God's guiding and leading human minds to the conceptual level. My view is that inspiration is principally God's guiding and leading human minds at the conceptual level. That is, general notions, broad ideas, the building blocks of words and sentences. Inspiration is how God, through the Holy Spirit, stimulates human minds at the level that the brain formulates ideas into words and sentences, so that authors, through their experiences, learning, emotions and words, write a message consistent with the divine intention. This is not to say that God simply gives an author the gist of what he wants them to say. As if God tells the psalmist to write something poetic about God as a shepherd, which leads him to write Psalm 23. Or as if God gives Paul a few ideas about love, which he then turns into the ode to love in 1 Corinthians 13. Rather, inspiration in this view is a direction of personal thinking. In its extent, inspiration directs thoughts not the syllables of individual words. Inspiration involves a kind of supernatural connection between God's ideas and their verbal expression in the minds of the individual authors. Envisaging inspiration as primarily a direction of a person's mental conceptions means that God's word is translatable. If inspiration applies to the original words of the Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, then it means that those words alone are the divine revelation. That would inescapably mean that our English Bibles are not the actual words of God, but a mere translation of them into English. Such a view of inspiration is explicitly taught in Islam, where the Quran in its original Arabic, and only in Arabic, is Allah's word. All subsequent translations of the Quran are not equated with the divine revelation allegedly given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel, Yet, if we regard inspiration as pertaining to God implanting ideas into the mind of human authors, rather than giving them actual words, then translations which express the same ideas and convey the same knowledge can be regarded as genuine expressions of God's Word. Consequently, locating inspiration at a conceptual level, rather than at the verbal level, means that your English Bible is indeed the Word of God.
1: Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew is brought to you by the Eternity Podcast Network, where you can find other excellent podcasts like Evangelism in a Skeptical World with Sam Chan. Now, Dr. Sam Chan's podcast considers a world where people are really not open to the gospel and shows you how to communicate faith in a way that doesn't run straight into their defenses. Well worth a listen. You can find Evangelism in a Skeptical World with a whole library of other great podcasts, over at eternitypodcasts.com or just follow the link in the show notes. And also in the show notes, you'll find a link that will help you get your own copy of 7 Things I Wish Christians Knew. Now, up next, each episode, Mike Bird will interview a well-thought-out Christian who has a lot to contribute on our current topic. For episode 2... Mike speaks to Peter Williams. Dr. Peter Williams has been a senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen and a research fellow in Old Testament at Tyndale House, Cambridge, where he's currently the principal. So Peter is exactly the person we want to explain to us how the Bible is divinely given and humanly composed.
2: Well, I'm Mike Bird, and we're on the Seven Things podcast again, covering several things about the Bible it's useful to know. Today, we're covering the topic of inspiration, and I'm joined by the Dr. Peter Williams, who's the principal of Tyndall House in Cambridge. Welcome along, Peter.
3: Great to be with you.
2: Uh, Peter, now I'm going to say uh, I've I've known you for a while since certainly since um, your time in Aberdeen when you were a lecturer there, yep. then when you became the warden slash principal of Tyndall House, and you have given some of the uh, best um, lectures I've heard from an academic because normally academics are very boring. An academic is someone who <laughs> says and ninthly. Uh, but you're very good at problematizing stuff. Uh, I remember going to a lecture of yours at the British New Testament conference about the prologue of John's gospel, thinking yep. that I knew what the prologue was, but I came away saying I have no idea what the prologue I- is even is. I mean, does it end at verse 2? Does it end at verse 4? Does it end at verse 18? I mean, nobody knows anymore. Because, you know, it's just all the different manuscripts kind of, you know, put the paragraph breaks at different spots. So no one actually knows where the prologue to John's gospel is anymore. Um, And also, you've got a great lecture called Why You Don't Believe in the Septuagint. For those who don't know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Or is it? Uh, if you want to know more, more about uh, the Septuagint and why Peter Williams doesn't believe in it, you can check out that on uh, a good search on YouTube. But Peter, could you describe uh, who you are so our listeners will know?
3: Yeah, so uh, I, I'm I'm a POM, uh, I'm a scholar of the Bible, and I've had the privilege of researching the Bible for about the last 30 years. So I'm 50 now and uh, been involved in doing Bible languages, particularly uh, tends to be my angle looking at. Languages, manuscripts, primary data, and then um, increasingly asking some of the the, the bigger questions about ha- how you look at the Bible as a whole.
2: I should say you're also one of the editors for the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, yep. which is a, a, new, a new edition of the Greek New Testament that, mm-hmm. that, uh, pre- that presents a uh, fr- fresh presentation of the text and organizes all the variants. So it's kind of user friendly and easier to read. So that's another one of your great achievements. Now, in terms of, uh, let's say, the Greek New Testament or the the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, Christians commonly referred to these texts as inspired. People Mm -hmm. talk about the inspired word of God, the inspired text of scripture. Now, I've seen two very big extremes the way people mm-hmm. talk about that. I've seen people talk about inspiration in a kind of, you know, very romantic sense as if, mm-hmm. you know, Matthew was sitting by the sea of Galilee one day and, you know, he, he felt the peace and he felt the serenity of a nice, of a nice afternoon breeze. And he felt the peace. And he, and he said to himself, you know, I think Jesus would want to bless the peacemakers so he kind of took out his little parchment and quill and wrote down, you know, Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers," and he couldn't, and that kind of inspired him to write bits of the Sermon on the Mount because he was inspired by the peaceful surroundings of rural Galilee. Uh, that, that's one extreme I've heard is if it, inspiration is very much just kind of a some sort of poetic muse that God or creation provides, and then I've heard the other extreme as if, you know, Matthew went into his study, you know, had all his writing materials ready. He then sat down on his chair. His eyes kind of then just rolled back in his head. He went into some ecstatic um, trance, began unconsciously writing. And when he woke up about three hours later, he had written the gospel according to Matthew. So it's almost like an ecstatic experience going on. Now, I'm pretty sure uh, Peter, when, when you think about inspiration, or or something like that, you don't have either of those models in mind.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it, with, with Scripture, um, you have, I suppose, the word uh, becomes common, inspiration, from, say, King James of 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, that um, Scripture is given uh, by inspiration of God. And um, that's obviously referring to Old Testament uh, texts. And uh, there is this Greek word which you might literally take as as god breathed and, and so uh some people say well that that therefore it, it, it's it's a good word but it really is it inspiration is is confusing because of that romantic concept it was used um in the 19th century to think of poets uh having that in a muse uh and so it's a bit of a a, a problem there and scripture gets written different ways i mean some is is very um his historically researched like luke will talk about how he went and researched things to write them other other um letters may be uh written in a heat of passion a a psalm uh, i guess can be made up in different ways i mean an alphabetic psalm uh, you have to think well uh, you have to go through the letters of the alphabet and think, well, what, what am I going to put with this one? Um, So Psalm 119, which is based on the Hebrew alphabet uh, has to be crafted uh, through, through mental effort. So all of these things happen as different processes, but a a Christian belief is that we can say that not only is the human, the author of each of those things through the means that are used, but God also says, yes, that's, that's my word too. Um, And uh, you know, it's not, god saying me too it's god (laughs) uh god god genuinely superintending through all of his manifold ways the process so that things turn out the way he intended
2: okay so that there's not like one production line of the way that god imparts sort of you know knowledge words into an author there's a variety of processes going depending on the genre and the text
3: yeah yeah, I, I don't think we even know the limits of the different ways that God has of getting what He intends done. Because there are some things like Judas betraying Jesus that's that um clearly was uh within God's sovereignty, and yet I don't really have a clue how that works, but Judas is fully guilty. Um And and clearly that's not what we're talking about when we're talking God's connection with scripture, which is uh, more positive because it's I guess it's not just that it it comes from God, but also God has has planned it and intends it to benefit his people. So there's something more about the mind, but, you know, God's mind is mind boggling. So, um, yeah, we shouldn't be looking to limit the way God works.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's important be, uh, because if you if you get a, a too rigid idea of what you think inspiration is, it can fall down when you come across the actual phenomenon of scripture. OK, so for an instance, you know, when Luke, I think you alluded to this, when Luke says, you know, I've carefully investigated these things from the beginning, I think Luke actually has carefully investigated these things from the people he's met in his journeys, maybe looking at you know Paul's travel diary or, you know, who knows who he talked to and what he got his information from, but he's actually done some sort of research and it's out of that, that there's a kind of synergy between what he's learned, his own style, his own training and facility in Greek and what God wants to say through him. And then you've got uh, these other things that happen as well. Like when Paul's writing to the Corinthians when they're having, like, a debate about, you know, I got baptized by Paul, I got baptized mm. by Apollos. And he's saying, well, who cares? I didn't baptize anyone. And he says oh, yeah, okay. he's kind of, Then he kind of remembers. I mean, do you imagine God, you know, inspiring Paul to forget who he baptized and then reminding him kind of mm. uh, after the fact? Uh, no, I, I just think you've got God using his personality, his memories, even... Dare I say his mood? You know, mm-hmm. when he's writing these letters, and these, and these, that the moods are very different. I mean, the the mood of Galatians is you you can imagine Paul pacing among the floor, kind of raving and ranting, and some poor scribe taking it down. Whereas Philippians is obviously he's in a far more um, a very thankful mood that he's, he's dealing with a, 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 a some congregations that have been a boon to him rather than a kind of bane. Um, I, I was going to say then. At the level of inspiration, do we think of inspiration um, as God providing concepts? Is it words? Is it the gist? I mean, it, I mean, it may well be different for the different literary tasks, but, but do we know the kind of degree of influence or
3: where that influence may operate in, in a given author? Well, I, I think it can just vary so much, Um I mean, I'm thinking of the first verses of the epistle to the Hebrews, where it talks about many different ways, many different times that God's spoken in the past. Um, So uh, he doesn't try and enumerate the ways. It's many. Um, So what's God's relationship between, say, Jeremiah's complaint when he's saying uh, this isn't fair? Psalmists sometimes complain. Um, Job complains. Well, God is... Uh, superintending all of those and intending those to be there, written down for our good, um, but that's different from Leviticus, which you know you could say is the most inspired book in the Bible because I mean most of it is God said, and then we got some quote words uh, unto Moses or Aaron or, and so <laughs> there is that sense that most of Leviticus is. Once you allow speech marks in the Bibles, they're a bad thing, but they've been around about 100 years. Um, once you allow them in, most of it occurs within speech marks. So I think there's a different sort of process that you have with different, um, different bits of literature.
2: Okay, that, sound, that sounds very interesting. Uh, but if you can change tack a bit of it, I can ask you a tricky topic. How does inspiration relate to sources? For example, you know, a lot of the Book of Kings, and I know you've spent some time Mm. looking at the Book of Kings uh, in the original Syriac, if I'm correct, um, as one does. Um, I mean, there's references to the annals of the Books of Kings or, you know, or the Epistle of Jude quotes, you know, from one Enoch. Uh, Mm -hmm. Does biblical inspiration also mean the sources of the Bible are inspired?
3: So I think that there are, again, loads of different ways that God can get uh, the final product as he, he wants them. And uh, clearly people use sources. I mean, there are lots and lots of references in chronicles to sources, um, but Kings also has references. Um, and so yeah, talking, you can have books talking about the book of Jasher and things like this. Um, so I imagine that what we've got is we've got, say, with the book of Kings, we've got some chronicle-type material. Uh, some of these can be royal annals we know that other surrounding nations had those so it makes sense that um israel would ha- have have those then you've got but clearly as a whole um the book of kings hasn't been written as royal propaganda it's not got royal sponsorship to write that sort of stuff um and uh, you've got these prophetic cycles uh with Uh, Elijah and Elisha. Now, you know, we can hypothesize that we've got a bit of chronicle here and a bit of prophetic cycle here. And so we've got two different sources and so on. That's fine. I just feel that you can never get very far firmly identifying sources. I mean, a bit like uh, whether it's with the Synoptic Gospels or the Pentateuch, I've seen people ruin really good brains trying to stuff them with. (laughs) Hypotheses And like, you know, guys, there are so many manuscripts to read, real texts you could hold in your hand. Um, I'd prefer to spend time on that than hypothetical sources. But of course, God can use sources um, as part of uh, the process of bringing about um, his really good book collection.
2: Okay, well that's that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah, I've always been a little bit frustrated with people who spend so much time uh, talking about uh, somewhat speculative views of of sources that may not exist and building these wonderful elaborate schemes on them. Um, Proto-Mark or Proto-Luke and all these things where uh, a lot of the biblical books are a bit like jigsaws. I mean, we know that they, they do have sources which have come together and you know, maybe we can figure out one or two bits, pieces, but like you know, when someone's put together a jigsaw puzzle, um, you don't really know what order um, mm-hmm. they've done it in or necessarily um, which parts of the box they're drawing from in any given time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, another tricky question on inspiration. How do you think it applies to the editing of biblical texts? because some texts have obviously gone through a bit of an editing process Uh, for the case in point, you know, in the, in the Pentateuch, I don't, um, I don't think Moses wrote about his own death and it seems as if there's a a post-exilic thing coming through, you know, that you know, there's debates about, you know, how many different Isaiahs there initially were when the, uh, when the document was created. And even Jeremiah is a somewhat tricky text uh, when we think about the way that was put together and, you know, what did it, End up coming out in different editions. One when he was, you know, in uh, Babylon or or Palestine, and another one when he was taken to Egypt. You know, H- how does inspiration relate to what could be the possible editing of books over a period
3: of time? Yeah, well, I mean, the Book of Jeremiah is a great case to start with because we know that one uh, copy of the book ended up in the Euphrates and another one ended up in the firepan. Uh, so. so uh, we've got a, a couple of, of, of copies of Jeremiah that, that got rather ruined, and they even asked Baruch, you know, how, how do you get this? And he says, well, you know, Jeremiah told me these words, and I wrote them down. So I think you can um, you can have um, editing, you can have different editions. I suppose what I want to do is I want to take clearly the statements of Scripture about itself as a, a guide. There's nothing in the first five books of, of the Bible that says. Moses wrote these all. Uh, And you've clearly got uh, with the end of Deuteronomy that it works best if it's written a long time after Moses, because it's looking back on Moses life and saying, since him, no one's arisen uh, since uh, who's like that. And I wanna hold that together with the fact that when it's presenting Moses' speech, it really is presenting what Moses said. So those are the two things I wanna hold together. And there are some pretty impossible to investigate historical things in there because we simply don't have any sources other than what we have in Deuteronomy. I think with Isaiah, you've got this thing at the beginning of chapter 13 where it talks about Isaiah of Jerusalem speaking about Babylon. Uh, And so I'd want to take that seriously, that Isaiah of Jerusalem, this um, 8th century prophet, spoke about Babylon. And I want to make sure that in whatever I'm, I'm thinking about the book, those sort of bits are taken seriously if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, that does, that does. Okay, a final question for you Peter. Um how does inspiration relate to the formation of the biblical canon? Okay, mm-hmm. so does 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 God inspire books and then says, okay, well, you good people can do with it as you want, you know, pick choose fr- uh, frying pan for some. How how is God involved? through the putting into not just of the initial composition of a book and maybe it's editing and preservation but being put into a sacred collection you know that we call Mm. a canon Uh, what are your thoughts on that peter
3: yeah so i think god doesn't just uh press print if you like like what we might do nowadays um uh he gives writing and people so he gives moses plus writing he gives um, Jeremiah as an individual, plus his his book, and he he gives the apostles, and he stakes his reputation on the apostles. Um, that is, he I like to think of them as the PR firm that he commissioned, um, and uh, he therefore stakes into his reputation on them. And there may be people they bring in extra to just the you know the twelve. Um, during the period of their contract, they can bring in new employees and and that's fine. Uh, That's all part of the original PR contract. So I think that you have to um, think not just of of the books, but also that God gives you people who are um, guaranteeing that success, but that doesn't go on forever. There aren't apostles of that kind uh, forever. So I'd say... With the Old Testament, it's not difficult uh, because if you go to a typical Protestant church and you go to any synagogue, they're using the same books. And so you'd say, well, you know, we just use the books that the people of God in Old Testament times, they validated. I mean, whenever that um, set of books was finally signed off, we're using the same as another group. There's an external control, at least for um, the Christians. With the New Testament, again, the four Gospels, you can pretty easily justify um that collection brought together by the second half of the second century, probably earlier. Um, it, it's when you get, with with the little books, two, two and three John, these sort of questions um, are harder uh, to tie down. But the the ba- basic method is to, to again, go back to that PR firm, the group of the apostles, and the books that are associated with them. I think that was Eusebius's method in the fourth century when he was looking at what the book should be.
2: Okay. Well, that's a very good way to put it. Indeed. Uh, Now that is now Here's the absolute final question. Um, If someone was asking you for the elevator pitch to describe inspiration, biblical inspiration. uh, So you've you've only got like a minute or so in an elevator and someone says, I'm off to a meeting. Can you remind me again, what biblical inspiration is? What would be your one minute uh, somewhat terse explanation of inspiration?
3: So I would say that Jews, Samaritans, Muslims, Catholics, Orthodox Christians and Protestants historically have all believed that God gave verbal sequences. They've never believed that he just gave them in one particular way. Um, Muslims might have been uh, more on the dictation uh, view, but... All of the other groups, uh, Judeo-Christian, have believed that God gave verbal sequences. That's, that's a normal thing to believe, that those sequences, in a sense, share his character. Um, but he's got so many different ways that he can do that. And it's not just... Well, it'd be rarely if dictation. I'm not saying God God could use that as well, but he it's just so many poetic, creative ways. Because guess what? He also made the people who then write these things down. He uh, made everything around them, the ink, everything like that. So God superintends the process, and it's amazing what he can achieve through our uh, fallible bodies, through everything about us, which is just so weak. He he can bring about to have things that are written that really edify the church.
2: Well, that sounds like a great summary, Peter. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. I'm Mike Bird, and I've been talking to Peter Williams, the principal of Tyndall House in Cambridge. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us for 7 Things I Wish Christians Knew. We hope it's been a helpful challenge for some of the unconscious assumptions we make about history's best-selling book. Now, Mike, in a sentence or two, what do you think we should take away from this episode?
2: Okay, well, there's two things I want to stress. First of all, I want to stress what inspiration is not. It's not the case that Moses or Matthew wrote something and then God looks down on it and says, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'll give it my stamp of approval. Okay, that's not what happened. What I think is what happened is God's spirit moves in the minds and the hearts of authors to use their personality, their vocabulary, their worldview, their understanding, their experience, their repertoire, all of their sort of writing abilities to compose a message in human language, in human forms, in human genres that will have the impact and achieve the purposes. For which god has intended it that's what i think we mean by biblical inspiration
1: mate thanks very much for putting that so clearly and if you're convinced you can get your own copy of seven things i wish christians knew by just following the link in the show notes now next episode we invite dr brian rosner the co-editor of the new dictionary of biblical theology onto the show to discuss our next chapter scripture is normative not negotiable Mike, thanks very much for being on the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Mark. And thank you, everyone, for listening.
1: And we hope you can join us next episode.
0: You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network. Eternitypodcasts.com.au